We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. It's me, Kate Lister. I am here, as I always am, with your fair dues warning. The fair dues warning is the warning that we have to give at the top of each show, just in case you weren't aware of what this podcast is about, just in case you'd seen the words betwixt the sheets and thought, this is a podcast on interior design and soft furnishings. Well then, ha, you are in for a surprise because... This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults in an adulty way about a range of adulty things. And you should be an adult too. We are actually getting a bit uh, spicy today. Is spicy the word I want? I don't know. Because we're talking about bestiality. Yep. Yep. We're going there. It's a subject. It has a history and we are tackling it today. So please, you might want to put young people and pets in the other room so they don't have to listen to this. And if you're still with me after all of that, then let's get into it. The year is 1750 and we are sat in a courtroom watching a trial take place between a man and his donkey. Yeah, betwixters, this really happened. It's not a joke. The man is accused of bestiality. To quote the Bible, If a man lies with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast. Seems harsh. <laughs> On this day, however, the public rally behind the donkey, and the beast shall not be slain. Hurrah! The public rushed to the donkey's defence, signing a petition stating that before it was owned by the man in question, this was a good-natured and virtuous donkey. The judge considers the evidence and the donkey is acquitted. The man, however, is found guilty of bestiality and he is sentenced to death. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing a button. <laughs> Now! 
Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. While many laws and attitudes towards sex and sexuality have progressed since the 18th century, the ones around bestiality have not, and with very good reason. We don't demand that donkeys stand trial anymore, I, I'll say that, we've come that far. But for a pet-loving nation, there's a strange hypocrisy at the heart of how we think about animals. With violence, and often often sexual violence, towards animals being so normalised through agricultural practices and animal husbandry. How does the law differentiate between an industrialised process and a deranged lonely person's perversions? What does our relationship with animals tell us about our definitions of love, sex and consent? Are you feeling uncomfortable already? Yeah, I did warn you. Well, today we are joined by Joanna Bork, author of Loving Animals on Bestiality, Zoophilia and Post-Human Love. And we are going to tackle all of these deeply uncomfortable questions and more. But before we get to that, I have a little favour to ask you, possibly for the last time. But amazingly, betwixt us, we have made it to the top 10 for the Listener's Choice Awards at the British Podcast Awards. The top 10, and that's all thanks to you. So thank you so much if you voted for us. The voting officially closes on the 5th of September. So if you haven't already, please follow the link in the show notes. Give us a vote and we might even win it this time. All right, Betwixters, I am ready to do this if you are. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Joanna Book. How are you doing? I am doing really well. I'm on the Greek island of Poros right now, so I'm getting <gasps> lots of work done as well as lots of swimming. Oh, that sounds lush. Is it super gorgeous and hot and you're just eating lovely food and olives and all kinds of stuff? Yeah, it's a little bit too hot. It's about 38 degrees today. Holy moly. Okay. Yeah. That's quite spicy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, but what a situation. What a location for you to be talking to me about bestiality this morning. <laughs> it's a really interesting subject, you know, because everyone says it's like this huge taboo and yet it's everywhere when you start looking at the topic, you know, in art and theatre and cinema in books, you know, so it is a really fascinating topic for a so-called taboo that everyone talks about and thinks about and watches and hears about and, and stuff. So I really enjoyed and learned a lot writing the book. When I knew that I was talking to you, obviously I was doing some reading around this and reading your research. And, and it was that bit that got me was the point that you made about it is this huge taboo. And I'm sure everyone listening is going, Jesus, yes, that is a taboo, quite rightly. But then you're right when you point it out oh my God, it's uncomfortably everywhere. And that's, we just not notice that. Do we do? <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. And I'm often wondering just why it is that people say it's a taboo and yet we consume it all the time. We consume images of it all the time. And I do think it's got something to do with our human curiosity about the other, mm. about, you know, this sentient creature's who are so close to us and yet so different from us. Sentient creatures who we we love, we, you know, we play with. I mean, half of our households 
have a so-called pet, have a companion species, and yet they're so different to us, and yet we love them so much. And I think it's that sort of curiosity that kind of sparks this interest in, you know, cross-species love, cross-species affection. Wow. So when you say bestiality or bestiality, depending on where you are, what do you mean by that? Because like, if I hear that word, I think someone's having sex with an animal, like somebody is giving a cow a hand job or doing something to a hamster that they shouldn't be. Do you just mean like affection, like we love animals, that we anthropomorphize animals? One of the chief reasons I wrote this book is precisely to question what we mean by sex and what we mean by love. Because you're absolutely ah. right. When we think about bestiality, and you know, there's other words for it, um, like zoophilia, but when we think of that, we do tend to think of a very phallocentric, yes. a very anthropocentric idea about love and sex. And, you know, I think we ought to be questioning that because sex is not simply about those kinds of activities. Sex between humans is much wider than that. And I think it's very interesting to think about, you know, when we say sex between different species, in this case, between human animals and non-human animals, you know, what are we talking about? If we are talking about penetrative sexual activity, then it's very, very different to if we're talking about stroking as we would with a human partner as a form of sexual intercourse, as a sort of form of sexual intimacy, I should say. So, you know, what are we talking about? And I mean, speaking as a woman here, I think it's really important to move away from a very phallocentric notion of sexuality, which, you know, is, is very conservative and very narrow in its definition to something that is much more embracing of difference. Everybody listening to this now, everybody reading your book will just be sat there going, what? Holy, what? what are they? Now, they'll now be looking at their pets, these lovely things, and just thinking, oh my God, what is it that we're doing together? You must have encountered a lot of uncomfortableness when you were writing this book and doing this, this research. Is that part of what made you want to take it on is to, I should probably preface this by saying that we're not actually advocating it. We're not We're not going to start like a zoophilia pride or anything like that to try and reclaim a minority. Don't have sex animals. It's really bad. But what you're saying is you're trying to break down the intimacy of the relationship that we have with animals all around us all the time. Yeah. I mean, Kate, my entire career really is based on looking at different kinds of violence and I actually wrote an earlier book on human-animal interactions, which is all about violence, a book called What It Means to Be Human. But, you know, all my work actually is about some kind of violence. And most of our interactions with non-human animals is violent. And certainly sexual interactions with animals is almost exclusively violent. I mean, humans claim to love animals, but, you know, we destroy them. We wear their fur. We eat them, or some of us eat them. We do incredibly horrible things to animals without their consent. And most of my book actually looks at those horrible things and the history of those terrible things that we do to animals, including companion species, including our so-called pets. But we don't have to do those things, and we can. And I think I want to encourage us all to think about ways of changing that, of actually 
engaging with particularly companion species, but also, you know, non-human animals more generally in ways that respect their needs, their desires, their preferences. And that is what I think is a really interesting and a, and a very challenging thing for us to do because Western society in particular is really based on the exploitation of animals. You know, it's at the heart of Western society and indeed many other yeah. societies as well. But thinking about how we can change that, how we can think in different ways about these animals who we do love. I mean, I do think that most people sincerely love their pets. They do try and treat them with respect and feed them, make sure they have enough water, talk to them, you know, but other ways that we can think about the needs of our companion species and other animals more broadly. It's such a fascinating topic because I think it's one that we, and I include myself in this quite firmly, is that we're very, very good at ignoring it. We're very good at pretending that it doesn't happen about creating distance. Like the fact that you can go to a petrol station in the middle of the night and get a pepperami is on one hand, great, get pepperami. But we never think of the fact that something's had to pay the price for that, that something has had to die in order for you to have that. Or we very, very rarely do. And we have this real state of cognitive dissonance around it is that if I look around my little office right now, without meaning to, and I think I love animals, but I'm surrounded by animal cruelty. I am, but like my shoes, I've got leather in them. I'm sure that some of the products I'm using have been tested on animals and I'm sure it could go on and on and on. If I actually saw those animals in front of me and it was like, right, Kate, you can have this lipstick, but I am going to have to bash this rabbit over the head repeatedly in order for that to happen. I would go, no, no, please, please don't do that. What is that, do you think, that human beings on a mass scale can do that, is that we don't actually engage with the suffering that we do cause animals? And we do, unfortunately. We do We do, do that. Yeah, our entire world around us, as you just said, is based on this. Um, you know, the idea that we can somehow change this overnight is frankly ludicrous. But we can start thinking about it. And particularly, we can start thinking about it mm. in the context of those animals immediately around us who we do generally care for. And that's, I think, a really important first step. And also, acknowledging and recognizing that our companion species, you know, the dogs in our household, our cats and so on and so on, you know, have senses, have needs, have preferences, have desires, and paying attention to those things, those aspects of our companion species is the first thing. And second thing is acknowledging our own positionality. You know, we are human. We can't just step out of that. By definition, we're anthropocentric, but we can think beyond that. And that's something that certainly, you know, I'm increasingly doing in my own life, in my own relationships, not only because it says something about our relationships with our so-called pets in our household, but also it tells us something and it helps us think about our relationships with other human beings and about you know, paying attention to their needs and desires as well. So it is about sentient life more broadly and you know, how we can know the other. And is the other always inscrutable? It's always unknowable? Or can we pay more attention? And that's, I think, what the book tries to, tries to suggest that we should be doing more often than we do. 
One of the things I thought was really fascinating about your research, and I know it's fascinating because it made me feel deeply uncomfortable <laughs> when I read it. I was like, oh no, was that you sort of made the point that bestiality, as in having sex with animals for pleasure, um, however phallocentric that might be, that's the taboo. That's the one that, that we all go, no, 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 thank you, don't do that. But then you point out that actually we do have sanctioned acts of bestiality all around us, and we're okay with that. Like, how do you think dairy milk is produced, which is always exploiting the animal's fertility system? Or if you want animals to reproduce, you have to gather their semen, which is performing a sex act on an animal. And that made me go, oh, no, (laughs) when I read that. Yeah, you know, animal husbandry, farming is based on Hmm. acts of sexual intercourse and sexual manipulation of the sexual organs of animals. You mentioned dairy cows. We could say the same things about pigs. We could say the same things about a lot of our farming. And this is one of the things that I think uh, really, I shouldn't say it made me laugh, but it did. Because in the 1990s, (laughs) all of these huge debates in parliaments all around the world about criminalizing bestiality, criminalizing sex with animals. And I mean, I need to give a little bit of background here because basically, Mm. you know, the criminalization of sex with animals happens in the 16th century. Then there's lots of changes to the law, but it's basically fundamentally decriminalized inadvertently in the 1990s with legislation about homosexuality, human male homosexuality in particular, okay? Because the legislation that criminalizes bestiality is the same legislation that criminalizes consensual intercourse between human males. So they used to call it buggery, it was the buggery act. Then they used to call it sodomy. So these acts against sodomy are about human male sexual intercourse and human animal sexual intercourse. So with the decriminalization of homosexuality, they inadvertently decriminalize bestiality. So in the 1990s, suddenly, for various reasons which I discuss, they discover that bestiality is in fact not a crime. So they try to recriminalize it. So you get all of these big debates in Parliament, particularly in the States, where they try to criminalize bestiality. And the problem is, and this is where I started, you know, sort of smiling, because they suddenly realize that how do you word an act that criminalizes sex with animals, but doesn't criminalize ordinary animal husbandry? farming practices. So there's all these massive contortions that these legislators are forced to go through to try to criminalize one thing, but not criminalize ordinary farming. So they really tie themselves up in knots trying to do this. So they basically, it had to come back to the idea of pleasure. So, you know, if you get pleasure from doing it, then it's a crime. But of course, if it's simply capitalist production, then it's absolutely fine. So it was one of these kind of funny moments when, you know, I'm sitting in archives and I'm thinking, what? The mental gymnastics that we're capable of as a species to go, well, that's wrong. But this thing that I'm doing, that's okay, actually. You touched on it there. Let's talk about the history, because obviously having sex with animals for pleasure has a very, very long history and it's interwoven in many creation myths as well. But talk to me about how it first became illegal. What was that, the buggery act? And how on earth did sex between two men even end up on the same statute books as humans and animals having sex? Yeah, I mean, it's partly due to the movement of law from ecclesiastical 
jurisdictions to state, to governmental jurisdictions. And this is why it's criminalized, because it's non-reproductive sex. So it's criminalized the same way as homosexuality is, because it is sexual intercourse that does not lead in to reproduction of, of the species. And it's fundamentally, and here I'm talking about Western societies, it's fundamentally based on biblical prohibitions about lying with the beasts of the field. And this is taken up by state legislators in this period of of history. And the penalty for it is, of course, death. And that remains the case, as it is with male homosexuality, and that remains the case until the 19th century, where you get a change, where it becomes no longer a felony, but it becomes an act against cruelty to animals vile practices in public, offensive practices in public, and offences against property. So, you know, you are carrying out an act against the property of a, for example, a farmer, or property of the owner of the dog, and such like. But what's really interesting in that early period is that the animal itself is considered partly libel, partly responsible. No, it's not, Joanna. That's And this comes in two ways. Firstly, you're not allowed to eat the animal afterwards or drink the animal's milk. And there are two reasons for this. One reason is the milk or the meat is polluted. The other reason is that it's a form of cannibalism because the animal, by engaging in sexual intercourse with the human, has become partly human. Oh, my God. The second thing is that when these cases get to trial, the animal is often accompanying the human. So the animal is brought before the court and is judged to be the innocent or guilty and is then executed. So there's a very famous case actually of a woman, which is very unusual, where her dog is brought into the courtroom. And the dog, when sees his owner, wags its tail and comes up to the woman. And that is judged to be, okay, that dog is guilty. And so the dog is then executed in front of the woman who is then executed immediately afterwards. There's another famous case where a man has sexual intercourse with a donkey. He's brought into court and the community signed a petition on behalf of the donkey saying that the donkey up until this stage has led a virtuous life. And the donkey is actually set no. free, but the man is executed. <laughs> so, um, so it's a very different conception of, you know, what we mean by bestiality and, and what is actually happening here in this early period of history. I'll be back with Joanna after this short break. I'm Eleanor Yanaga, and I'm thrilled to be joining Matt Lewis to co-present Gone Medieval from History Hit. Twice a week, every week, we set out to answer the big questions that have vexed people for centuries. Like, what did the Romans ever do for us? Roads, buildings, walls, churches, houses, manuscripts. Why did Edward I mourn his Queen Eleanor so much? He was very good at making a show for people to see that was going to influence how they would understand him or his campaigns or anything like that. 
Did Viking hero Ragnar Lothbrok really exist? Maybe yes, maybe no. The sons who are attributed to him were definitely real people. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga, and me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. I don't know about you, but one thing that bugs me is having to plan and cook healthy-ish delicious meals every single day. Frankly, I think it's time that could be better spent. You might be saying, hey Kate, what's the solution? Well, luckily for you and me, Factor has made it super easy to eat quickly and deliciously. Their fresh, chef-created, dietitian approved meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. With over 35 meals to choose from each week, you can tailor your orders to fit your dietary needs and your schedule, even pausing and rescheduling deliveries if you need to. These are restaurant quality meals that require no prep, make no mess and are delivered right to your door. With Factor, you can take the stress out of healthy living. Head to factormeals.com slash betwixt50 and use the code betwixt50 to get 50% off. That's code betwixt50 at factormeals.com slash betwixt50 to get 50% off. Being part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families past and present from all over the world to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. I, I don't know what to say to that, Joanna. Apart from I would have signed that petition. I would have signed that to get the donkey off the hook. I would have signed that this is not a slutty donkey petition. Help me get inside that mindset of how is the animal to blame? Like they really put the animal, I can understand the human, like you've been caught and that we understand that there's agency in that. But 
what on earth were they thinking that the the donkey or the dog or whatever it is could be in any way part of this? Like, was it the idea that, that the dog was tempting the human? What on earth were they thinking? Yes, the animal is often seen as licentious, as you say, tempting. Remember that the human is also seen as having, by engaging in this act, to have become animalistic, to be have become literally bestial. Oh. So the human is also has been degraded to the level of the non-human animal. So these things are all working in tandem. And of course, the animal is regarded as polluted in some way by this encounter and therefore cannot be left within the community. I mean, even people who witnessed someone committing an act of bestiality were believed that their soul was at risk simply by having, for example, caught the two at it, that their soul was at risk by even just witnessing it, inadvertently witnessing it. So these things are all tied up with each other. And this all changes from the 19th century, where it becomes much more about cruelty to animals and improper behavior in a public place, which is, again, a very different idea of bestiality. And you know, in different jurisdictions, you, you can either get life for that, or you can just get a few weeks, a few months. So there's huge variation in the punishment of this kind of activity. There's really interesting research done in the 1950s. I'm thinking here of Kingsley's work in 1948 and 1953, which showed that one in every 12 male in America admitted to at some stage having engaged in sexual intercourse with a non-human animal. So that's one in 12 in the late uh, 1940s, early 1950s. And similar research has been done in more recent periods that actually suggest quite high levels, particularly in rural areas, high levels of engagement at some stage, usually in adolescence with non-human animals. And interestingly, the higher the education, the higher the propensity to engage in these sorts of activities. So again, it's unusual, but it's it's not as rare as I think most of us, and certainly myself when I started this work, had assumed. That must have been quite shocking for you to find those kind of stats. I'm shocked just listening to it of how common this seems to have been. These cases that you reference where the animal is brought to court, are they quite common? Or in these cases, they're, they're remembered because they're so unusual? They are unusual. These court cases are very unusual. I mean, in Britain, over a century, I think we've got, we're talking about in the dozens. We're not talking about more than that. Right. It's much, there's evidence is much more common in earlier periods, and particularly in Europe, much more common. But no, these are not frequent cases. But of course, more, many more people in the 16th to the 18th century, many more people are executed for bestiality than are executed for homosexuality. You know, there's excellent evidence to show that. Wow. It's very difficult to know where to take the conversation when you just keep dropping these really shocking bombs on me. Where are we up to today? Is it illegal to have sex with animals today? Is there a difference between bestiality, as you're discussing it here, which is more like a sort of para social relationship between humans and animals, and people are actually identify as, is, is it zoophile, zoophiles, zoophilia? Yeah, zoophilia. It is illegal in Britain to have sexual intercourse with animals. Sexual intercourse, though, remember, is defined in a particular way. Yes. You know, the penetration of mouth, anus, vagina by any of the parties, um, etc. But it is illegal to do so. And, you know, most of the cases are prosecuted under cruelty to animals, 
legislation, which is right. good. <laughs> but, you know, there are communities of zoophiles, zoos as they call themselves, you know, there are communities of people who profess their love, sexual love of animals and profess it as a kind of sexual identity. What was happening in the 19th century to sort of change attitudes around this? Because you looked at how, that first of all, bestiality even got onto the books, and it's this idea of not reproducing. But then something's happening in the 19th century that these attitudes start to be questioned and changed. Is it just changing attitudes to human sexuality in general? Or what was happening at the time to, to drive this reassessment of this act? It's driven by a lot of different things, including urbanization, pets, <laughs> I mean, people actually having pets as opposed mm. to animals that are there for farming purposes and you know, more pragmatic purposes. It's also due to the rise of progressive movements, such as movements against cruelty to animals, which is a really important one, yes. which you know, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was established decades before the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, you know, that animals had took on this really special status within Victorian society as creatures that needed to be protected from human beings. And it's linked also to questions about movements, I should say, about vegetarianism and, and those sorts of issues. It's also due to big debates about human exceptionalism. So Darwinism is really important in this story. When you start saying, well, actually, you know, we have an evolutionary connection with non-human animals, that gives them a different kind of status. So there's all this, yes. a lot of philosophers started speculating about this idea of human exceptionalism, most famously, of course, the philosopher Kant, who, you know, makes a big argument about that sex with animals is an affront to the dignity of man, as he put it. And we need to, you know, ensure that humans retain their position at the top of that pyramid of life. Those are the sort of the main reasons, I think, for this new interest in bestiality in that particular period of history. Because we do have a very long history of seeing ourselves at the top of a quote-unquote food chain, or even there, there being a food chain. But that was something that started to be questioned in the 19th century as well. This, this idea that humans have been put here by God to be master of everything on the planet, that was challenged and being reassessed as we are actually just another animal. And that steeps into lots of Victorian novels and dramas and all this kind of fear of almost like a devolution that we could maybe unevolve back into animals again. Absolutely. And it's it's tied in with some of the most invidious racist ideologies of the Victorian period. Oh. You know, about well, you know, it's the white male at the top of that pyramid. And, you know, there that there's all these different groups beneath that white male at the top. And of course, you know, desperately trying to ensure that that white male remains at that top mm. of that pyramid. And, you know, racist thought is really important in this, as well as, you know, being challenged, of course, by women, by white women, about their position within that hierarchy. Are white women, are they, are women generally closer to animals? Where does white women fit in that? Middle class women, working class women. So there's all this real struggle for authority, for power, for dominance that we are seeing. And you know, non-human animals get tied into that. And certainly the early feminist 
movement in early Victorian Britain were very concerned about the way that women were linked to pets and to animals and mm. desperately trying to ensure that they change that and that they keep animals down, if you like. It's so true, isn't it? That, do you know what I've just been struck by when you say that is that the 19th century saw this move towards animal protection, a move away from animal cruelty. And that was a few hundred years ago now. And in that time, I'm not sure how much further on we have come with it, because in many ways, our systems today with industrial farming and industrial processing is it's far crueler now like for example i might be completely off here but just tell me if you're but i I really like watching old cookery shows on youtube like from the 60s and 70s and i was struck by one the other day that they were really excited that they had a chicken for christmas dinner and now today that would be like a chicken that's not very special you can just go and i suddenly realized that's because you can just go down the street to a fried chicken shop meat is everywhere it's plentiful it's all around us that seems to be quite a recent development in human history. The affluence of meat, it doesn't seem to be as precious as it used to be. Yeah, we don't think, or most of us don't think about putting a piece of animal flesh in our mouths and chewing it. I mean, when you start thinking about it, it does become a little bit gross, to put it mildly. Mm. But most of us don't, because as you say, it's, it is all around us. And we are taught from most many of us, not all of us. I mean, there's a sizable community, of course, of people who don't do this, who who choose not to. But actually, it's not as large a community as one, well, as one might have thought. I mean, veganism, vegetarianism actually is still very much a minority within our society, Mm. a small minority, I should say, within our society. But we want to somehow, we want to make distinctions I mean, we wouldn't eat our dog, even though, you know, and happy carnivore in Brighton wouldn't eat her dog, but she might, she will eat perhaps a chicken or a piece of beef, you know, a cow. She will drink milk. So, you know, we kind of make these distinctions in our everyday life, which makes us feel like, you know, we are acting in good ways. That is true, that we draw these strange lines around it, don't we, around what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Do you think, I mean, put it aside that it's, it's don't have sex animals for pleasure, but do you think that it would ever be possible to live a life free from animal cruelty? Or do you think it's so entwined into our culture that, that you couldn't really do it, that something's always being hurt along the way? I think it is possible to create a world without violence. Certainly, mm. you know, all of my work, is an attempt to think about ways of doing that. I work a lot on sexual violence. People make similar arguments there that it's always with us, it's always going to be with us, etc. No, I think that we can create non-violent worlds. But we do have to think in very imaginative, very different ways if we are going to do that. And it's not going to be easy because capitalism is fundamentally Mm. founded on the abuse of non-human animals, as well as the abuse of humans, you know, human animals. And to get rid of one, the whole thing has to come toppling down, if you like. You know, you can't just extract the non-human animal from cultures of cruelty. There are also cultures of cruelty about humans and human, human animals that are fundamental to our society. But I don't think that the embedded nature of it should stop us or should discourage us from 
kind of thinking about that and trying to imagine what mm. that world would look like in the future to come. When you were writing this book, were you a different, I mean, you must have been a different person by the time you finished it, but were you, how were your attitudes around human relationships with animals changed? Did you approach it with an already very set view that, that was reinforced or did it? Did this research change your outlook completely? Research absolutely changed totally in the in the course of of writing this book. You know, as I said earlier, it the book came out of an earlier book I wrote about human animal interactions, which was a much broader book about the ways humans and animals interact and what is the human and what is the animal was the really central question there. But when mm. I turned to look at the sexual aspect of it, there were so many things that. I didn't know and I didn't expect. I think the embedded nature of our sexual abuse of animals was something I, I really sh shocked me because I hadn't thought about it. And I don't think many people do think about it. No. But also thinking about questions of consent, questions of, well, what do we mm. mean by sex? What do we mean by love? Is the other always impossible to understand? You know, how do we try to live good and ethically responsible lives? You know, these are all, I think, big questions that really mm. interested me and surprised me in my journey in writing this book. Did it turn you into a vegan? Or were you a vegan before? Or are you a vegan now? <laughs> I'm a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. I'm a vegetarian too. <laughs> I am a vegetarian. I mean, I was before, but I don't, you know, I don't actually, I'm not a pet owner, but I'm very interested in seeing people's relationships with their companion species. And, yes. and you know, I think all of us, particularly over the pandemic, sort of started to notice and started to I think maybe even appreciate more the companionship that we get from our, you know, from our dogs, our cats, our, our other other pets. I've been a vegetarian for years and just this conversation might be the one to shift me into maybe veganism is the way to go. It was just the fact that like when you pointed out that actually we do sexually exploit animals all the time and that we have this weird attitude to it. Well, that's okay, but that's not okay. You might have done it. You might have just tipped me over, over the edge. <laughs> oh, well, mission accomplished. <laughs> oh, you have been incredible to talk to today. If anyone wants to know more about you and your research, where can they find you? My books are in any shop. Um, I'm on Twitter, reconsidering that one. But <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to hear different people's views on such difficult, I mean, these are difficult topics. And I think yeah. the conversations that we can have, I think can always be helpful. You have been mind blowing today. Honestly, I could talk to you forever, but thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me today. This has been amazing. Kate, it's always lovely talking to you. <laughs> Thank you for listening and thank you so much to Joanna for joining me. If you appreciated what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We have got episodes on Polari, the hidden gay language and senior sex all coming your way. And if you want us to explore a subject or if you just fancied saying hello, you can also email us and you can get us at betwixt at historyhit.com. This podcast was edited and produced by Stuart Beckwith. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. 
Join me again, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.